If you're looking for premium quality vitamins and natural supplements, New Roots Herbal has you covered. Proudly Canadian and family owned for over 35 years, their dedication to quality and testing truly sets them apart. Each ingredient is rigorously tested by their ISO accredited lab from raw materials to final products. So you get exactly what is promised on the label, pure and potent ingredients safe from heavy metals, pesticides, and toxic chemical solvents guaranteed. New Roots Herbal products are available exclusively at health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. U.S. residents can now find New Roots Herbal products on Amazon.com. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. So I wanted to welcome everyone who's come over from Talk Healthy today. For all you Naturally Savvy listeners, don't run away. Don't worry. It's still the same thing. It's still me. And Andrea is going to be back to join me more often in co-hosting, which is awesome. Now, if you heard me on the Howard Stern Show on Tuesday saying that I think JD has NVLD, which is nonverbal learning disorder, I'm so glad you're here. We do have a lot of fun and you're going to learn a lot. And that's my goal is to help people live their healthiest lives, give them the health power and have a great time. So I'm beyond thrilled. Joining us now is Dr. Gregory Scott Brown. We're going to talk about his book, The Self-Healing Mind, an essential five-step practice for overcoming anxiety and depression and revitalizing your life. Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, MD, is an integrated psychiatrist, mental health writer. And today, as I mentioned, he's here to talk about the self-healing mind, an essential five-step practice to overcoming anxiety and depression and revitalizing your life. And despite being a doctor who works with patients and commonly gives advice, it is his personal story that introduced him to understanding the importance of mental health. And we are going to get into that. He also writes for Men's Health. He has a column about topics dealing with mental health. Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, welcome to Health Power Thrill that you are the one kicking it off with me. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, you're wonderful. The book was so incredible. There's still a stigma, isn't there, doctor? And I think that's what's so hard is that we've come a long way in some ways, but in other ways, I think we still have a long way to go. Well, I'm encouraged by the fact that more people like you are having these conversations. I think social media is definitely a double-edged sword, but one of the benefits of social media is that we can reach so many people with productive conversations about mental health. And I think that actually helps reduce some of the stigma associated with it. I'm curious, when I saw last night the sad news about Naomi Judd, mm-hmm. and it said she died from mental illness, a lot of people assume suicide. And I'm I'm curious, what, what did you have thoughts on that? Well, I think the first thing we have to keep in mind is that that news is still fresh. We don't know all the details. Sure. About, so I, I'm still following it. And I want to respect the, the family's privacy there too. But you know, just generally speaking, I think it's important to realize that a lot of people who do struggle with mental illness are undiagnosed. They never set foot in a psychiatrist or a therapist's office. But, you know, anytime that something like suicide is involved, you have to think, okay, was there depression? Was there bipolar disorder? I mean, what was the underlying cause of it? You know, I was really glad that you brought this up in your book. You talked about all the chaos in 2020 with COVID-19 and George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's murders and the xenophobia against Asian Americans. And it's just this chaotic thing and the uptick in people being like, I need help. Right, right. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we were staying at home more. We were on our smartphones more. Um, We felt more isolated. And I definitely noticed that I was in a state, even though I'm a psychiatrist, where I was paying more attention or kind of forced to pay more attention to my own mental health um, for my sanity, right? Like many other people as well. And that's really 
where I think these self-care strategies that I talk about in the book uh, come into play. Something like breath work, right? Something like focusing on our nutrition or our sleep. These are things that all of us have access to. And I think that we shouldn't undervalue um, the power of those self-care strategies when it comes to improving our mental health. Yeah, I love the pillars. We're going to get into the five pillars. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you had talked about understanding the differences between mental health and mental illness. Talk to us about that. So, so many times when people think about mental health, right, when you hear the words mental health, it's usually depression, anxiety, suicide. Those are the first things that people think about. And, you know, these are really important topics to talk about, Lisa. But it's also important to realize that mental health is something that affects all of us, even if we haven't been diagnosed with a mental illness. So someone who is listening Um, they might think, okay, you know, I've never been diagnosed with depression. I've never had thoughts about suicide. So mental health, that's not really for me. It's not something I need to pay attention to. So I think that if we broaden our definition of mental health um, and really redefine it to be this idea of living with purpose, balance, contentment, and hope, then that's a definition that can resonate with much more people, many more people, Um, And I think that that can really spread the conversation and get people interested in paying attention to their mental health. Yeah, I think so, too. It's so important. I love this quote. Mental illness isn't a choice, but mental health can be. And that's just what you said, basically, right? That we got to make these choices. We got to look at our sleep and look at our movement. Look what we're putting in our body. Everyone listening, don't worry. I'm not going to go on my sleep diatribe. But when we get to sleep, I'll say just a tiny bit. I'm like, sleep's like my religion. But anyway. (laughs) As it should be. I think that's a great religion. Yeah. Yeah. It's super important. You know, one of the things that I loved about your book, I love the stories. I love your candor. And if you could share a little bit about your own uh, issues with depression. Well, I think that there's a lot of power in hope narratives. And I call them hope narratives because, you know, most of the time, you know, when people are talking about, um, you know, their struggles with mental illness, you know, there's there's a, a positive outcome on the other side of that. And I think we need to pay more attention to the fact that people who do struggle, they can and oftentimes do get better, right? Um, so in my personal um, you know, story, when I was in my early 20s, I struggled with depression. Um, at the time, I was on a totally different path in my life. I was uh, an oboist at the Juilliard School. Um, I had moved to New York from uh, a suburb of Houston with my uh, girlfriend at the time, who was my high school sweetheart. Um, I ended up moving back down to Houston, transferred um, to Rice University just because I was burned out by living in New York and the curriculum at Juilliard. Um, And, you know, over the uh, next few years, I just went through a period where um, I was questioning my purpose in life. Um, I felt out of place. I felt like I had made a mistake um, by leaving. The relationship collapsed. One thing led to another, and I ended up entering uh, what I would identify now as a pretty significant uh, depression. Uh, ended up spending a morning uh, in the emergency room. And, and, and during this time, Lisa, I wasn't talking about it. And I think that's what made it um, particularly um, dangerous in my case. Now, I was, I was fortunate um, because I, I, I can appreciate that many people um, who have experienced what I've experienced don't make it. Uh, There are over 120 suicides on average every day in the United States alone. And so I think that, again, you know, the fact that I was able to serendipitously 
uh, happen upon self-care. I was able to establish a yoga practice. Um, those are things that helped me get through uh, that period of time uh, in my life. And so what I advocate for now is, you know, people who are struggling, they definitely, if they can, plug in with a professional, a mental health care professional, a therapist, a psychiatrist. But I also think they should appreciate that self-care is a powerful tool, uh, especially when you're using it alongside therapy and medications. Yeah, and I love, too, the way you talk about self-care because it's not like I'm going to go, you know, have a spa day because that's right. not possible for everybody. And that's 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 not even what we're talking about, right? Right. And I, you know, I think that's a really important point because you'll see books and social media posts written about how you don't need self-care. What you really need is a, a better paying job or you need a nanny or you need, you know, uh, the perfect medication. That's not what self-care is. I mean, that whole argument is just based on a definition of self-care that it includes the spa dates and the massages, um, and it turns self-care into this elitist sport. What I'm talking about are the simple things that we have control over, you know, the way that we manipulate our breath, uh, the food that we put in our body, um, how we sleep. I mean, these are things that can actually go a long way, uh, and they don't cost a thing as far as improving our mental health. Exactly. And before we jump into the pillars, there was a couple things I wanted to talk about. First of all, I'm really interested in resiliency. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in why some people seem to have it and some people don't. Is that a nature nurture? Is it how you're raised? What's, you know, what's happening? It's a mix. So there are some resiliency genes that scientists have identified, uh, CLMT, some of the serotonin uh, transporters. And you really see that in cases of uh, early childhood trauma. Some people who are exposed to trauma will go on to develop uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Others who are exposed to horrific traumas, even without therapy or trauma processing, they just won't develop it, um, PTSD. Um, but that doesn't mean that resiliency isn't something that each of us can forge, right, that we can learn. Um, one of the ways we can do that is with the strategy called um, adapt or active coping. So essentially what that means is that, you know, if you are, um, say, working in a toxic environment and at the end of the day, your way of coping is with a glass of wine and a bubble bath, that wouldn't necessarily be an active form of coping because the next day the problem is still going to be there, right? <laughs> Even though it makes you feel better in the moment. So uh, active coping might be, Um, you know, learning what the specific barriers are, the specific things are that make that environment toxic. It might mean that you need to schedule a meeting with your supervisor and talk to your supervisor about ways that you might make the environment uh, more conducive um, to your emotional and mental sanity, right? So coming up with specific strategies that will allow us to move forward and navigate life um, with less of those stressors. I love, too, you talked about this yoga class that you went to. It was Yoga for Men, Forgiving Resiliency. Tell us a little bit about Chris and Alec from the yoga workshop. They are remarkable men. So Chris and um, Alec have started this workshop at the time. It was called Yoga for Men, Forging Resiliency. Um, And once a month, a group of guys would meet uh, in Austin at this yoga studio Um, And the first half of the workshop really focused on the social and emotional learning um, aspect. Um, And there's a lot of communication. The the reason why it was important is because a lot of the men who had uh, attended that workshop had never been to a therapist before. They had never been to a yoga practice before. Um, They were there and just curious about what the experience 
uh, would be like. Um, and some of the topics that were covered were, again, resiliency, as I just spoke about, um, this idea of curiosity before judgment, um, which was something that uh, really resonated with me and I continue to share uh, with my patients. Um, and this idea of, you know, treating our words as gems, as, as jewels. Our words are very powerful. Um, and, you know, it was a very, um, you know, influential and, um, you know, life-changing experience going to those workshops. Oh, that is so awesome. Before we leave resiliency, I thought this was interesting. You had a, a section on resiliency over grit. So oftentimes, you know, people, when they are faced with challenges, will uh, think that resiliency means that you just, you know, push through those challenges, right? And, you know, what I've learned um, through my own personal story, as well as my work with patients, that resiliency really is our ability to adapt, right? And so this, this really goes back to the idea of, of radical acceptance as, as well, right? If there's a mountain in front of us, whatever that mountain may be in our life, I mean, we can bang our head against the mountain, we can try to blow up the mountain, uh, destroy the mountain, and oftentimes that's not going to get us very far. Sometimes the simplest thing to do and the best thing to do is to walk around that mountain or to figure out a way to coexist with that mountain. And so um, that's really what resiliency is all about uh, versus grit. Yeah, I want to jump into, there's so much more, but I want to jump into the five pillars of self-care. You have breath, sleep, spirituality, nutrition, and movement. Tell us a little bit about the time that you went to a music camp in Florida, and then you talk about being in a yoga class in Houston and how you yeah. got connected to your breath and to yoga. I love those right. stories, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the, first time, the first time I tried yoga, I think I was about 16 or 17 years old. I was at a camp in Florida. Um, and it was an underwhelming experience. It was not impressed oh. <laughs> at all, at all. It was humid like, as it, hell, right? It, it was It was humid. I felt like oh. the whole experience was kind of juju, you know, woo-woo right. stuff. And, and, and I wasn't feeling it. But thankfully, thankfully, I, I gave yoga a second chance. Um, and either by the, the second or third uh, time I tried it, it really started to resonate. Now, one of the reasons um, why it really resonated was because of this idea of breath to movement. So at the time, uh, I really enjoyed uh, playing pickup games of basketball. I was active. I considered myself an athlete. Um, but I found that during yoga, if I was not connected with my breath, I wasn't able to make it through a class. I felt like I was suffocating, right? Yeah. Um, and so that was really my first lesson, uh, Lisa, in this mind-body connection, right? And oh, yeah. so learning to really focus in on my breath helped me move my body better. It helped me get through that class. I mean, it was a total mental game that I continue to carry with me to this day. Wow. Yeah. My husband's super into yoga. He's actually doing a yoga teacher training right yeah. now. So someday yeah. in the future, I'm a Pilates person myself. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I'm bored. Everybody's listened. If you haven't listened yet, my mom forced me to do yoga when I was 14 because I have scoliosis. It was not fun. I did it again in college, still didn't like it. But then I did it every single day of my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And even though I still had a lot of misery, yeah. <laughs> I certainly felt a lot better than I think I would have. So, um, and, and it's funny because it didn't stick. I was like, oh, I'm so into yoga now. Look yeah. at my yoga arms. No, I didn't have yoga arms. But, <laughs> and, and that's another thing too. This is something I, you know, I really want to get away from. This is something I'm proud of on Health Power. This show is open to all shapes and sizes. You don't mm -hmm. have to have yoga arms. You don't have to have a six-pack ab. I want to yeah. focus on the holistic person, right? I want to encourage everyone to move, everyone to eat better, 
everyone to take care of their mental health, not only if you look like you just stepped out of a gym, which, by the way, you really turned me on to somebody. And I want to thank you. This woman is flipping amazing. Danae Mercer? Danae Mercer. She is oh, my gosh. This, she's incredible. my hero. So Danae Mercer is such an influential um person that I was able to uh, tell her story uh, in the book. So Danae Danae is a journalist. She's a uh, body positivity uh, influencer. She has millions, millions of followers uh, on social media. And she posts candid uh, photos of, um, you know, what, what her body looks like. And I had no idea until I interviewed her that she's someone who once struggled with anorexia. Um, and she had, you know, it was so severe that she sought treatment um, for that. And, you know, telling her story, I thought was just so inspiring about how she's been able to overcome that. And one of the ways that um, she's been able to overcome that is through the power of self-care. There's something that I read that I have to, that it just made me laugh out loud. So I love this. You say, we're talking about breathing. Uh, the easy part is telling someone to relax, take breaths, or calm down. Of course, yeah. generally speaking, these words tend to ensure that the person they're addressing will do the total opposite. Right. Okay, so my daughter, and she's fine with me talking about it, she has anxiety. And when she gets anxious, I'm like, breathe. She's like, mom, you're not helping. She's like, I'm not going to breathe if you tell me to. I think, you know, I think the first thing, when you said your daughter struggles with anxiety, the first thing that came to mind is we all have anxiety, right? right? I have anxiety. You probably have anxiety. I mean, the exact statistics are about 40 million people every year would actually meet that clinical threshold for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, but anxiety, I mean, when we're hungry, I mean, that will make us anxious enough to get up and go out and get something to eat, right? <laughs> uh, when we wake up in the morning, you know, that fear of maybe losing our job will make us anxious enough to go to work because we want to pay our rent, pay our mortgage, right? So um, anxiety is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Now, it's when it starts to interfere uh, with our life or cause functional impairment, that's when, um, you know, it would make sense to maybe think, okay, maybe this is something that I need um, to get treatment for. Now, when it comes to, to breath work, I mean, you're right. If you just tell someone who's having a panic attack to breathe, they're going to hyperventilate and it's going to make the panic attack even worse. I don't do that just so you know. No panic attack. I wouldn't do that. Go on. <laughs> now, I mean, the important thing to keep in mind, and this is what I spent some time outlining in that chapter of the book, is that there are different ways of manipulating our breath. So one method is four, seven, eight breathing, which I, I really love. It's when you inhale, count to four, hold, count to seven, and you exhale, count to eight. Okay. Now, the science behind that is when you exhale longer than you inhale, that activates the parasympathetic nervous system. And so what that does is it lowers your heart rate, it lowers your blood pressure, it flows your brain with an inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA, which is great for helping reduce anxiety. We actually pre- prescribe a medication called gabapentin, which can do the same thing, right? Um, and the other thing that it does is it increases alpha wave activity in the brain. These are all physiological markers of rest and relaxation, okay? So, um Again, the body is wired in a certain way, Lisa, that, you know, there's certain ways that when we manipulate our breath, our body has to respond um, in a positive way. It has no choice. All right. So we're going to jump into the pillar of sleep. And I already mentioned, I'm not going to go on a diatribe. I'm just going to say that when my daughter was little, there wasn't a lot of sleep. And so I 
love my sleep schedule. I go to bed every night between 8.30 and 9. If you want to go to dinner, we better be getting the early bird special. So Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, let's talk about sleep. Well, the thing about sleep that most people, again, with commitments and deadlines, you know, it's, it's easy to say, okay, the first thing that I'm going to sacrifice is sleep um, to make more time for other things, right? Um, and I'm, I'm still guilty of this uh, to this day. I mean, one of the things I have to be very conscious of is that I'm getting enough sleep. Um, but uh, the thing to keep in mind is that sleep and mental health have a bi-directional relationship. So that means that if we're not sleeping well, our mental health is likely to suffer, right? And if we're struggling with something like depression or anxiety, like 70% of people with depression have poor sleep, right? And so oftentimes, yeah, yeah. And so oftentimes, you know, I focus on talking to my patients about modifiable um, things that they can change that could potentially improve their, not only their sleep, um, quantity, but their sleep quality. That's what you want to focus on, right? Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And I was depressed. I was, and I'm a very upbeat, bubbly person. I wasn't as happy. Right. I was tired all the time. I lost a lot of weight. I right. just wasn't myself. Right. I just didn't, it, it really can screw up your mental health. It t- totally, totally. So some things you want to focus on. Um, so science has consistently shown that the best, the ideal temperature for our bedrooms is uh, leans on the colder side. So between 65 and 67 degrees, right, which always irritates my wife because she likes the warm, warm house. But um, yeah, that's what science shows, right? So when you're trying to improve sleep. Love science. Wanna, yep, yep, yep. Uh, you you want to lean on a colder room, right? Um, the other thing we want to try to do is limit the amount of screen time uh, before we go to bed, right? Because green and blue wavelengths of light that's emitted from our tablets and smartphones can block the release of melatonin. Um, and then the third thing I, I tell folks is create, try to create a, a bedtime ritual. So if you're working out, try not to work out too close to bedtime. Do the same thing every night, whether it's reading a book or, you know, taking a warm bath, drinking a cup of tea. Too often we get up in the morning, there's kind of a ritual we have to start our day, right? We drink our coffee, take the kids to school, go through the news to kind of get going in the morning. But then at the end of the day, it's just kind of like, okay, now it's time for bed. So maybe an hour before bedtime, starting to, you know, create that ritual. Something else I talk about in the book that I encourage all the listeners to check out is Yoga Nidra. So Yoga Nidra was cultivated in the United States by a psychologist in the 1970s named Richard Miller. Okay, Um, and, you know, the studies, again, this is totally evidence based, but the studies have shown that um, as as little as 10 minutes of yoga nidra a day can potentially improve sleep quality. Okay, and with yoga nidra, you know, Lisa, you're not doing your downward facing dogs and your crow poses, you know, you're laying on your back. Um, It's a meditative practice. Um, You can listen to yoga nidra offerings uh, for free on YouTube or Insight Timer. Um, so it's a great practice if people are just wanting to get started. I want to jump into spirituality because mm-hmm. I love that you said this. You write, quote, when I suggest that spirituality is an important pillar of self-care for mental health, it's not uncommon for the person sitting across from me to smile politely and affirm, oh, but I'm not religious. Yeah. So that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but being in this field for a long time, I know that spirituality is, is not necessarily religion, but I think for myself, too, I don't think of myself as a spiritual person. I do find great joy in spending lots of time in nature. So maybe that's a form, but but talk to us about this. 
Yeah. So again, you know, spirituality does not mean religion, right? Religion is one of many forms of spirituality. Um, the reason I included it as a self-care pillar is because I found that throughout the thousands of clinical conversations I've had, whenever the topic comes up, it's always provocative, right? So, I mean, it really gets a a juicy discussion going, whether the person's religious or not, okay? Um, And usually what we land on, when I just listen, people tell me that spirituality is about connection, right? Either connecting with their inner self through something like meditation, connecting with their external environment, um, through either volunteering their time, being out in nature, right? As you just mm-hmm. said, yeah, I love uh, it. For people who are religious, connecting with the higher power, um, like God, right? And so, again, studies have shown that people who are able to tap into that inner spirituality uh, can quiet an area of the the brain called the default mode network, which tends to be overly active in people who are overworked and anxious and stressed out. Um, so there definitely is a scientific benefit for establishing that type of connection. I'm so glad you said that because I was the next thing I was going to ask is for you to touch a little bit on the, the this connection with science and spirituality. Right, right. And that that's what it's all about, really. I mean, people studies have shown that people who are able to develop a meditation practice or a prayer practice um, or even altruism, we learned that altruism, selfless service is an adaptive coping strategy a connection to other people um, through altruism um, are really able to develop that sense of purpose that can help with anxiety, can help with depression uh, long-term. All of these things, Lisa, should be you know used in conjunction with whatever you're being recommended uh, from your psychiatrist or your therapist. But again, if you're not plugged into one, if you're not meeting with one and you're struggling or you're on a wait list, I mean, this, these self-care pillars are really a good place to start. Oh, absolutely. All right. Now, this I abs- this is something I'd love to talk about, the medicine on your plate. Yes. So yeah. I mentioned that I have a book, and I focused on foods that are good for sexual health. And some mm-hmm. people roll their eyes and go, oh, it's aphrodisiac. No, 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 no. There's science. I'm talking about arginine and citrulline, and I'm not going to bore everybody. Well, we'll come back next time and talk about that. Yes. Oh, my God. And you're welcome. You come every month. I, I think you're fantastic. But, you know, no, I'm, it's about blood flow. And we yeah. talk about exercise in the book. As a matter of fact, it talks a lot mm-hmm. about yoga. Mm-hmm. And studies showing that yoga can help with your sexual health. And yep. anyway, but it's funny because some people, st- I don't know why people still don't get that. And it seems like we need to shift this paradigm, especially with mainstream physicians. And I'm not trying to, I'm not putting them down. A lot of them have, but I've noticed because I've been doing this for 22 years that the physicians who have the information on food as medicine had to go out and learn it on their own. You are totally, totally, totally right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad because in medical school, we're not, no one taught us about nutrition. Um, and Hippocrates famously said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, right? But yep. still, still to this day um, is not happening. So, you know, I learned about nutrition in an integrative medicine fellowship uh, that awesome. I did like after I finished medical school, I'd gone through residency. So you have to definitely go out and learn this information um, on your own, but there's, there's definitely a benefit for uh, paying attention to what foods you're putting in to your body when it comes to mental health. Well, you know, I love this too, though, because it's, it's this interesting thing that I'm working with now of like, I used to be like, only eat clean and, you know, mm-hmm. you got to just stay away from everything. And now I'm like, okay, you know what? I want, I want people to, I want to meet them where they're at. 
Sure. And I want to, again, have a show for everyone. So I love that you say, instead of thinking in terms of good foods and bad foods, appreciate food in general as sustenance that supports mental and physical health. And I did a video the other day where I was kind of making fun of, uh, you know, I was eating a salad. And I'm like, well, if you're a real, you know, health podcaster, you're only eating salad. And then I looked like it was somebody else. Still me, though, of course, like eating chips and salsa. Like, you can do both. But there are certain nutrients that we would like to get to, right? Right, right. I mean, it reminds me of the time, I think it was Dr. Oz, they caught him at an In-N-Out burger, and he was like, <laughs> yeah, you know. But anyway, um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be one who, you know, stands on a pedestal here and says that, you know, you have to eat salads and kale and Swiss chard every single day, and you can only eat oatmeal. I mean, it's not practical, right? And it's not sustainable, and so um, here's what the science says, okay? So when you're talking about nutrition and mental health, we know that uh, some nutrients to consider the omega-3 fatty acids uh, that are commonly found in fish, oily fish, mackerel, salmon, tuna. Not everyone likes fish. I get that too, right? Um, uh, this is an area where supplements might make sense. So there's some pretty good evidence that supplementing with an omega-3 um, at the appropriate dose of what's been studied is between one and two grams a day. And when you look at the back of the bottle, you want to make sure that the EPA to DHA ratio, these are two different types of um, omega-3s, is two to one. So that's what was studied and found useful for depression, okay? Um, leafy greens. So leafy greens, um, these actually uh, help build some of the precursors to important neurotransmitters that are involved in our mood, like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. Um, and then one I'll just throw in again, there are many more in the book, uh, is L-theanine. So L-theanine is an amino acid that can be taken as a supplement, but um, it's found naturally in green tea and black tea. And studies have shown that it can help for mild forms of anxiety. So the bottom line here is rather than revamping your entire diet and just eating a Mediterranean diet, try to make it more Mediterranean-ish, I should say, uh, because a little bit can actually go a long way. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say I, I think people should eat the standard American diet because I don't. It is right. that. But right. if you are currently just eating the standard American diet, I'm not going to tell you to change everything. Just add mm. things in, add things in. Add things in. I mean, eat what, eat, eat what you like. I mean, if you're, and again, I mean, if someone is, is, is eating an extreme diet, you know, the, the standard American diet every day is, is not healthy for physical health or mental health. And that's like highly processed, no vegetables. Everything's coming out of a box and has tons of additives. And okay, just so people, if they weren't sure. Right, yeah. right. But Again, I think, you know, if someone is, is going to just try to revamp their their diet in one day, that'll probably last for a week and then they'll go back to the standard American diet, right? So, you know, if you slowly start to incorporate some of these changes, then maybe in a month, six months, you might find yourself um, eating better, eating more nutrient-dense foods. Uh, and it's that, that's a lot more sustainable than if you're just trying to do it all in one day. It's so true. And I'd also love to say those omega-3s, when yeah. I remember to take them for, because I'll admit I, I forgot for a while, but I'm back on them now, for a consistent amount of time, I get so many compliments on my skin. Yeah. It does make a difference. It really gives you, an, it yeah. gives you a nice glow. The other thing I'm glad that you focused on, which is so important, and we talk about a lot here on Health Power, is the microbiome. Talk to mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, when we are chronically stressed, 
um, it's thought to cause something called dysbiosis of the microbiome. So it depletes a lot of those healthy uh, bacteria in our gut. So when we re- the thought is that when we reintroduce those healthy bacteria through prebiotic-rich foods like yogurt and kefir, um, kimchi, uh, kombucha, that um, we're actually helping um, reduce that uh, dysbiosis. Okay, so those can be beneficial for mental health as well. That's great, and I, I have nothing to do with this product, but Omnibiotic is fantastic. It's yeah. scientifically. They have tons of science behind it, and I noticed a difference in how I was feeling, and my daughter did too. And we both noticed a difference in our mood, and that was what was so fascinating, that there is a connection now with your mood. So there's more serotonin in the gut than in the brain. A lot of people don't realize that. So it's important to keep a healthy gut uh, for brain health as well. All right, we're going to move into movement. I didn't even mean to, (laughs) but I'm bumped. Moving is so important. And I love this. You write, even before I discovered yoga, I recognize that moving my body has the power to make me feel good. And one of the things that I love is when people talk about joyful movement. Yes, I was intentional about not um, calling this exercise, about calling it movement. I did that on purpose, right? Yeah, I love that. Language is important. It's important. I mean, so many people, I think when you talk about exercise, I mean, it's just, it, it puts too much pressure uh, on people, right? And so the science actually shows that people who move their bodies more, um, regardless of age, are at a reduced risk for developing depression. Movement might mean, you know, dancing around your living room with your kids. It might mean walking to the mailbox, um, just getting in more movement in your day. For some people, it might mean going for runs or brisk walks or hitting the gym, right? Um, but just moving your body, that, that's what you want to do. Yeah, it's so true. I can't wait for it to warm up. So my lifelong dream was to get a pool because my happiest child memories were in my, uh, we had a pool in our, in our neighborhood and we got one last year. I am just waiting for it to get warm. I can't wait to get back to swimming. I just, oh my, and swimming is so good because it seems like it's something that everybody can do. And even if you can't swim, I used to teach water aerobics. Yeah. You can, you know, just get some, they even have like things you can put underwater to like add resistance to your movement. I mean, water is just so glorious for all ages too. Right, right. And I wouldn't be surprised if, so the American Psychiatric Association right now, we don't have any specific recommendations for movement um, and mental health, but the European Psychiatric Association does. Oh, oh nice. And so I wouldn't be surprised if within the next two years, you know, the APA follows suit. See, they really should. I mean, yeah. that that seems like something that definitely should. Now, I don't want to end on a downer, but there was I thought this was such an interesting chapter of giving up on death mm-hmm. and understanding suicidal thoughts. Tell us about Kevin Hines. This is quite a story. Another remarkable person I interviewed uh, for this book, and I've gotten to know. I mean, Kevin is just great. So when Kevin was um, in his late teens, early 20s, um, struggling with bipolar disorder, living in San Francisco... Um, he uh, left his dad a suicide note, got up one morning, took a bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, walked back and forth on the bridge for 40 minutes or so, reasoning with himself before jumping. And miraculously, he survived. He survived. And uh, let me tell you, Kevin has just traveled around the country, around the world, and he is just, you know, one of the most passionate suicide prevention activist that you will meet and he is just fired up about 
sharing his story of hope. And, you know, one of the things that was, um, you know, most surprising to me uh, when I spoke with him the first time was that, you know, he admitted to me that there's still days that he thinks about suicide, you know, decades later, right? He's never tried it again. Um, and he, he tells me it's never gotten to that point. But it's not like, you know, if someone has struggled in the past, you know, that uh, miraculously, you know, they're never going to have difficult times again. And so uh, self-care was one of those things, uh, including, you know, buying time uh, that yes. talk to me about, you know, you want, you know, it's like if you can buy yourself some time um, and medications are able to do this, uh, help, help with this too. It's sort of like extending the fuse. And sometimes that's that spark, that suicide spark will fizzle out before anything, um, you know, tragic uh, can happen. So uh, breath work is something that he utilizes uh, every day and just the importance of talking to someone, anyone, uh, even if it's someone you don't know, uh, because at some point someone's going to listen to you and help you get the help that you need. One of the things that was so intense about that story was how you say that as he's falling, he's thinking, God, I I don't want this. You, you explain it better. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it was so you know, powerful. You, you, you know, and I'm glad you're, you're bringing that up because, you know, obviously in my, in my clinical practice, I talk to a lot of people who have attempted suicide um, in my non-clinical work, you know, in social media, interviewing people for men's health. I mean, I, I, I talk to people um, who have attempted suicide as well. And the vast majority of people, Lisa, who have made an attempt, the vast majority of people regret it. I mean, they regret it. Um, and so the thing about, you know, people who are in that state of suicide, it's like, you know, they feel like giving up. They feel like giving up. So um, my suggestion is if you're going to give up on something, take suicide off the table. Give up on, give up on death right? Um, it's, it's not an option because, you know, if, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an irreversible thing, right? And um, again, since most people regret it, um, it's not something that, um, you know, you should even consider. The whole book is fantastic. The Self-Healing Mind, an Essential Five-Step Practice for Overcoming Anxiety and Depression and Revitalizing Your Life. Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, was there anything that you wanted to add? And I wasn't joking about the once a month. I'm sure you're busy, but yeah. anytime, Health Power Store is always open. We, there's so much more to talk about. You know, I, I would just encourage, you know, one of the main reasons I wrote the book, Lisa, is just I realize that so many people are struggling with depression, anxiety, or just curious about mental health. And I realized that, um, you know, many of them are not meeting with a therapist. They're not meeting with a psychiatrist. They never will meet with a therapist or psychiatrist. Read the book and share it with a friend, share it with someone that you love, someone you think will benefit from it because you never know what other people are going through and it might just change someone's life in a positive way. So true. All right. Tell us all the ways we can find you on social media so we can keep up so with you. My website is gregoryscottbrown.com. You can follow my work there. You can uh, order the book uh, through the website. It'll give you all the links to the, the online uh, retailers. Uh, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Gregory S. Brown, MD. Fantastic. This is so great. I love that we're kicking off Health Power. Again, formerly Naturally Savvy. Keep coming back. Like, review, tell all your friends, and let's all improve our health together. 